It's one thing to have a dream of making space more accessible to all. It's another for an incredible team to collectively turn that dream into reality. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts here in England, Chris Carney and Matthew Russell. Oh, love him. Of course, that's when we say Dickie B. We do mean Sir Richard Branson. Well, his friends call him Dickie B, don't they? So I think so. I'm going to call him Dickie Pickles. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I'm, I'm going with that. Just for the Americans, they might not be aware of that uh, Branson... Or Branston's is is a form of pickle over here. Yeah. So it, it it might be it might be you know a bit of an obscure joke, but yeah, yeah Dicky Pickles I think is quite good, isn't it? I actually cracked that joke the other day in a school when I was talking about Richard. Brad- I was talking about Dicky B, and I was like, you know, he had the record stop, shop to start off with. He had a you know a, 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 a record company. He had the airlines. He's had the trains. He's had the cola, the phone, the pickle, and there's like a bunch of seven year olds just looking at me going. No idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually quite amazing, actually, that, that virtually everything that Richard Branson does was ultimately funded by Mike Oldfield's tubular bells. <laughs> just, I didn't think about it like that. That's amazing. <laughs> but, like, I mean, literally, Richard Branson was almost bust. Yeah. In fact, he was bust. Like, people were coming around to sort of, you know, the receivers were coming around and everything. And... And Tubular Brells was this complete surprise hit. Yeah. Mainly thanks to mainly mainly thanks to The Exorcist. But it yeah. was a total surprise hit and rescued him, created a, you know, virgin, which he then sold to EMI, and everything else has then sort of just sprung out of that. It's incredible, isn't it, really? Yeah, it all began there and it's always all going to space. But uh, we'll get on to Dickie B a bit later on. But I thought uh, before we start on, uh, it's, a, it's a Space News Week. I know you, yes! you love a Space News yes! Week, Chris. I love it. I love Space News Week. It's the best. They, they come round quicker than I imagine. I was thinking, oh, we've, we've only just done one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like it was five episodes ago. They it's grow like, up, they oh. grow up so fast. <laughs> so next week I've got an episode with Bruce McCandless III, the son of Bruce McCandless II. The, Amazing. The iconic... Uh, US astronaut. So that, that's a great little interview as well. I really liked Bruce. He was a lovely, lovely bloke. So uh, check that out for a, a, an interview next week. But but before we start, Chris, um, did you know today, on the day that the podcast comes out, the 5th of July... Um, oh, by the way, congratulations to all the Americans, 4th of July. Yeah. That's when we're... Yeah, happy yeah. telling tell no. the king to yeah. shut off the day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sort of strange for an Englishman to say it, I suppose, but yeah. hey. Um, the, uh, the Earth will be at Aphelion tomorrow. Oh, right. I was going to go there myself. Is that that new club? <laughs> it is. Quite close to Mars. <laughs> no, as, as well you know, it's not a club. <laughs> it's, I, I, I don't even know why I'm even even laughing at that. That's absolutely ridiculous. Stop entertaining me. Well, as you know, there's a thing called periapsis and apapsis, which are basically the nearest and furthest away in an orbit that you can be. And when you hear the word helion in there instead, perihelion and aphelion, it means orbit around the sun, right? Mm. And... Uh, we're at Aphelion tomorrow, which is strange because you would think that when it's the hottest it's, it is, like it is right now, as in, in England, it's 
it's it's actually quite gloriously hot middle of the summer type thing. We've only just had the summer solstice, of course. Yeah. And um, but we're actually yeah we're actually the furthest away point you can be. Oh, how's all that work then? What's what's incredible about that? Do you know Do you know what the distance? You know the the variance in distance is. I'm actually it's actually quite surprising. Well, I I generally thought we're about ninety three million miles away from the sun, which is yeah, which is about right. At perihelion, when we're closest, how many millions of miles do you think we are? Oh, I don't know. Do, do we? Is it vary by a I don't know quarter of a mi- a quarter of a mil, half a mil, something like that? Well, no, it's it's quite significant. So it's ninety one million four hundred thousand. Oh, when it's close. So, you know, that's a significant difference, and it's a 93. And it's 94 and a half million when it's furthest away, like now. So there's, you know, there's a good 3 million miles of dif- difference in the orbit. But this doesn't actually truly, I mean, because that's kind of like, you know, it's chump change, isn't it, compared to the actual distance. So, so it is, yeah. it's, it's, it's a different factor that is causing this hotter weather than the distance from yeah. the sun. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's about 3%, isn't it? It's yeah. like a sort of 3% difference either way. But it's, yeah, I mean, obviously, really what causes the um, seasons, we know it can't be the distance from the sun because, of course, down in Australia, it's wintertime. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it would be a bit odd, wouldn't it? Because yeah. Australia's definitely not nearer. At, I mean, yeah, definitely not nearer at the moment because <laughs> that would be a very funny-shaped planet. It would be more like Oumuamua. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's the it's the it's the tilt of the Earth that gives the seasons. It's all about the tilt. There is quite interesting. I mean, often, by the way, Apelion is normally the fourth of July. It would seem, you know, most of the Apelions recently have been fourth of July or thereabouts. But occasionally, it's the fifth, and occasionally it's the third. So, what do you think is affecting that date the most? Um, what could be affecting that date the most? Le- leap years. No, no, nothing to do with leap years. Oh, sorry. Uh, is it to do with... Um, I'm out. Sorry. Go on. Well, it, well ignore, <laughs> ignore the leap years. Yeah, but well, the thing that changes our orbit the most, uh, that changes that date a bit, is the Earth-Moon uh, Oh, system. of course, the moon. Yes, yes. I mean, yeah, absolutely. The, 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 our stability, our little stability globe. Yeah. Well, well... If you imagine there's a barycenter, the, the, the centre of mass between the Earth and the Moon, yeah. that is actually in a really stable orbit around the Sun. But, of course, the Earth and the Moon are kind of orbiting each other yeah. uh, it, around that barycenter. So it actually does make a bit of a difference and changes whether it's going to be... Um, <laughs> it actually defines the timing of the perihelion, aphelion in any given year, is depending on where in that kind of where in the orbit the Earth and Moon around their barycenter are. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? It's superb. It's superb. It's, it's, it's Einsteinian glory, isn't it? Of course, there's other, there's other sort of larger changes known as the Milankovic cycles and oh. things like that, that, that and precession and things like that that are affecting this, the, the date that it falls on. But, yeah, the one that sort of changes it year on year is, is really, yeah, the Moon, the, the, the Moon's effect on us. Superb. Now we're at Apelion, we're only getting 93.55% of the radiation from the sun that we do at perihelion. Yes. So you would think it would have an effect on the weather, but it's, it's, it's really complicated. Hmm. <laughs> um, um, 
it, because you'd think, oh, well, maybe Australia and all those get hotter because they have their summer when they're closer to the earth. And, and of course, there, there is, there is a, a little bit of truth in that. The Northern Hemisphere summer obviously occurs when the solar radiation is, is at its lowest. But Northern Hemisphere averages are about 2.3 degrees centigrade warmer than those in the Southern Hemisphere. Why do you think that is? Um, is it because the top leans in more? <laughs> <laughs> you, it's a, you do realise that the Earth is a globe, don't you? Not, not a, not a tic tac. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm really not on the on the ball today with this. No, no, on. no. Well, so, <laughs> I, I, it's a, it's actually, of course, that there's more land in the northern hemisphere. Oh my, so that gets heated. What? It's more. It's because of this more. Yeah, because the Pacific takes up so much of, of yeah, the southern and hemisphere. the southern hemisphere. Yeah. yeah, and of course that's much harder to heat up. Yes. it's much harder to heat up the sea than it is to heat up the land. Yeah, it's warmer in the in the northern hemisphere because of that. Two point three degrees centigrade. Water. I'm going to go. Obviously, so I'm going to go and tell this story later on and pretend that I've known that for ages. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because of the way that that uh, you sweep around an or, uh, an orbit, particularly elliptical orbits, perihelion and aphelion don't uh, have the same time either. So the Earth's orbital speed is actually at a minimum when it's reaching this aphelion like it is at the moment. Yeah. And so it takes the planet slightly longer to sweep that bit of the orbit. And so therefore, <laughs> the um, summer, summer in the northern hemisphere lasts about 93 days, whereas it only lasts 89 in the southern hemisphere. But I mean, technically, it's just still quite hot down there, even though it's not summer. I mean, I've been, I was in Malawi during autumn time and it was like, you know, pretty warm. Yeah, I think that's because it's near the equator rather than, I think if you went down to the South Pole, you'd find it was a little bit chilly. It gets a bit cold down there, doesn't it? Yeah, it does get pretty cold, apparently. <laughs> So, yeah, I thought those were really interesting facts about tomorrow's or today's Apelion. I love it. Absolutely love it. The person in the street would be surprised that during the Northern Hemisphere summer, we're actually the furthest away that we can be from the sun. Yeah. By, totally. you know, by three million miles as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, that 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 drop up to 93.55% of the radiation. I mean, that's, that's that seems like it's pretty significant, right? <laughs> A cracking, cracking bit of news, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I've also got a birthday that I thought was worth mentioning because I doubt we've ever shouted out this person on the podcast before. And that is an astronomer known as Louise Freeland Jenkins. Great name. She was born on this day in 1888. And uh, she basically compiled catalogues of stars that were, the, were, that were within 10 parsecs of the sun. And we'll actually get onto a paper that's very similar to that uh, later on. It's a pretty important catalogue of stars. It's good to know <laughs> what stars are nearby, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. We might need that information sometime in the future. She died in 1970s, which is meant that I guess she get to, she got to see people landing on the moon. And for someone that born in 1888, that must have been mind blowing. Yeah, completely. I mean, that is a it's such a leap in in technology and our culture from an 1888, you know, literally Victorian yeah. times. Yeah, and, and when in 1921, 
after sort of working in Pittsburgh, I mean, she was born in Massachusetts, but she went to Alec Henney Observatory in Pittsburgh. Eleni. Eleni. Yeah, yeah, I reckon. I reckon. Yeah, I reckon you might be right there. But she, but yeah, in 1921, she moved to Japan. Huh. And you think, gosh, I it, I'm always amazed just how adventurous people were back in those sort of days. Like to to go to Japan then must have been really difficult. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> You know, f- flight has only just been invented, so presumably she didn't fly there. You know, th- this is like a, a voyage of some unbelievably hard voyage to get there. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and she and she sort of went to and fro. Her father died in 1925, so she came back, but then she went back out and, and taught again out in Japan and then returned in 1932 to, uh, to work at Yale University Observatory. So, you know, a, a pretty exciting life and uh, associated herself with Japan. But, yeah, known for her star catalogues, her um, research into trigonometric parallax of nearby stars mm. and variable stars. Mm. So an all-round, all-round legend astronomer. So Louise Freeland Jenkins, and, of course, there's even a Jenkins crater on the moon. Ah, amazing. Well, that's a good salute to her. You know, if, if you've got a crater on the moon, you know you've done all right. Yeah, we've done okay there. Chris, I don't know if you know, but last week I talked about the Changong. I do. The Changong uh, is the Chinese space station. And, and what do you, do you know what happened this week? Well, I do believe there may have been an EVA. Is that right? Uh, it, it is. There was an EVA, which is the first time the Chinese have done this since their one and only time in 2008. Amazing. Well in Chinese. It's, it's, it's a big deal because this actually coincides with the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party, ruling Communist Party. So, yeah. you know, it's, I think this, you know, this space prestige is very important for China right now. So that's really cool um, for them. Um, and I could, last week, I don't know if you noticed, I couldn't remember what the other name for Taikonaut was. Oh, that's all right. You can't remember everything, Matt. I can't remember everything. But they're called Heaven Navigators, you know, so Amazing. like hev- Heavenly Palace and and all those kind of uh, – and Heavenly Transporter and all these kind of things and Heavenly Telescope. Um, they're so uh, he- much better at this. But, yes, Heavenly Navigator, which is Hang Chan Chuan, is the name of their astronauts in sort of Chinese as, as long as – as well as Taikonauts. Amazing. I love it. Heavenly navigators. Heavenly navigators. So yeah, it was only it was only earlier on today, really, that Louis Boming and Tang Hongbo, who uh, went out on a seven-hour spacewalk. That's pretty. Brutal, it is actually it? astonishing, like that, uh, how long they are actually out there. But it's just it's 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 it, a lot of it's about cost as well, isn't it? It's like we you, we're putting you out there. You're just going to have to work a full-on shift here. There's no yeah. lunch break. And I do know, I mean, that is, I mean, that is incredibly physically demanding as in when you hear about astronauts, they say that, you know, that it almost takes the nails out of your fingers and stuff like that when you're working that hard, because it's like, it's pretty rough working in those spacesuits. Louis and Tang would have definitely have felt the pain doing that one. Yeah, without a doubt. For sure. Uh, And um, Ni Hei Sheng, who was the quote from last week, he was commanding that mission from inside the Tiangong. Mm. Um, uh, so they went out, they, they, um, elevated some panoramic camera. They, 
were testing the robotic arm that I mentioned that I wasn't quite sure had actually gone up, but it definitely has gone up because that's what they were working on. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and they put some f- like foot stops and things like that into the robotic arm so that they could actually sort of climb along it. And apparently they were, they were supported while, on the robotic arm while they carried out some other work. Uh, and yeah. these these spacesuits are brand new, so these are like newly developed spacesuits for the by the Chinese. So they're probably the most sophisticated EVA suits that have been out in space, I would imagine. Yeah, seems quite light. One hundred and thirty kilograms is what they weighed, so that seems like that that's a pretty you know that's a pretty light spacesuit, I think. Yeah, it's nothing up there though, is it? No, no. Well, well. <laughs> It's weird because, like, momentum still exists. So if you're trying to move around, you still have to move the object. It's just that you don't fall. It's just that gravity's not doing that. Yeah. So it's like when you're pushing things, it still it still requires effort. Yeah, definitely. When you think about space, you think that everything's really light and everything just moves around. It's, it's not quite like that. I think ah. it would it would take some time to get used to that kind of change in the physics. Yeah. Uh, you know, it must it must be weird. It must be weird. And of course, I guess the closest you can get is training in a swimming pool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you know, I, mean, it's, I wonder if they like sort of start to add like, you know, eventually there's going to be sort of robotic sort of equipment inside, which is going to move things forward. I'm sure they're working on something like that. Exoskeleton, yeah, yeah yes. robotic exoskeleton type things. I think a lot of these things is all down to cost, isn't it, and how useful they'll be, and whether they, of course, um, you know, launching up. Yeah, if they, if they can still manage by sending two people out for seven hours with no robotic arms, uh, then they'll carry on doing that. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you what, a big deal this is in China, by the way. Guess how many views it had on Weibo, which if you don't know what Weibo is, it's like the sort of Chinese Twitter. Guess how many views this spacewalk had. A lot of people in China, Matt. So uh, I'm going to go with 10 million. 10 million is not a bad guess. 200 million. Whoa. So, you know, this is a big deal. (laughs) It's a big deal. (laughs) That's amazing. In China. Well done, China. You know that the International Space Station is is that actually a kind of weird inclination in its orbit, uh, yeah. which actually makes it rubbish to as a staging post to go to the moon, uh, but it doesn't make it rubbish in terms of being able to launch Soyuz from um, Baikonur up to up to the International Space Station. So it's at this ho- horrible inclination. For that, basically, so that the so that the this old <laughs> Soyuz spacecraft can actually get to the International Space Station, but of course, China want to um, collaborate with the Russians and uh, and get cosmonauts onto the Tiangong. Yeah, that's opened up a really interesting um, a really interesting possibility, and Dmitry Rogozin uh, has been speaking to the Europeans, Philippe Baptiste, who's the president of CNES, the French space agency, about potentially having human launch capability from uh, French Guiana. Fantastic. And I should imagine that would massively increase the chances of uh, Matthias Maurer and uh, Cristoforetti uh, going yeah. up, uh, going up. Uh, as European astronauts to Tiangong. So that's really interesting. 
Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I mean, for, uh, we want more of this. We <laughs> we, we, we want more uh, capabilities of launching people up. So that would be that would be great. And and yeah. I guess the the French are, are ramping things up then. And like, uh, if that if that happens, then what what will we have then? Three three people launch sites, three personnel launch sites. Well, no, that that there'd be more than that because there's yeah. there'll be Baikonur. There's obviously oh, the Chinese, the, the, of course, there's Chinese. the Chinese, the Chinese one, <laughs> which, been talking uh, about. which which we've just been talking about, and yeah, and then potentially French Guiana, which would be awesome, amazing, yeah, that's so cool. And all the launches this week, by the way, there's like I think four four rocket launches this week. They're all Chinese, and that should say something about like the massive space ambition of the Chinese right now. Absolutely, China, China, China. What's uh, the latest on OneWeb? Cool. Good shout. Let's bring it back to the UK. So UK, yes. Yeah, so OneWeb has become sort of fully funded now. So Barty have invested an additional five hundred million into the company, which means that the the first tranche of these satellites is now fully funded. Which which considering it was bankrupt a couple of years ago, to where they are now, that's that's pretty um, incredible. And and talking of Russian launches as well, they they actually launched thirty six more OneWebs from Vostochny the eighth launch and that's 40 percent of the network up now brilliant uh all that investment means that the uk government own about 19.3 percent. so you and me chris have yep. a stake have a stake in this one web company we're up against musk uh, i haven't seen a penny of this yeah yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which means of course they've got 2.4 billion dollars of equity in this company with no debts which is pretty which is good news for the uk taxpayer basically absolutely um, and it's it's quite close to elon musk said that he was investing 30 billion in starlink his his version of course Whoa. um now so we've got all of that now what what's the what's the downstream problems of all this kind of stuff well the square kilometer array observatory which is an observatory that everyone's very very exciting about excited about because it, you know it's loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of uh, telescopes radio telescopes uh, and it should be able to unpick some of the mysteries of the universe but these mega constellations are definitely affecting how they're designing them <laughs> um the, the phrase is they change the game for the plans of these square kilometer array so right. they've worked out that uh, one web and spacex would account for about four percent loss of observations because they're going to have to take in the interference from those const co uh, constellations that's so that significant that that is pretty significant, isn't it? When we, when you're talking about billions and billions and billions of dollars uh, building an observatory to then have like a problem like that, but I think they're more concerned is OneWeb and SpaceX will expand their their uh, fleets, and of course you'll have entrants like Kuiper from Amazon and the Chinese Guowang constellation. Uh, and that might have 13,000 satellites, the Chinese. <laughs> so it's like, well, I mean, it's just insane, isn't it? So, yeah, that's that's we've got to the point now where satellites are interfering with astronomy. And, yeah. And, you know, it's the two things I love in life, uh, uh, hating each other. It's always that the way, odds. isn't it? Yeah, uh, but, but, of you course. Know. <laughs> 
So uh, <laughs> back back to the UK Space Agency. They've they've just signed a memorandum of cooperation with the Japanese Space Agency, JAXA, and that's a, almost a decade after their first one that they signed. And that for if you if you think about the significance of one of those things, there's three things that have easily been assisted and facilitated by that agreement a decade ago. And they're really cool. One is Bepi Colombo, which yep. is, you know, one of one of the crowns in, in ESA's space ship fleet right now. Without uh, a doubt. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, 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 yes, it, uh, three years ago I saw it being uh, readied for launch in French Guiana. So there we go. Um <coughs> Astra Scale, of course, is a Japanese country, uh, company that is over here also in in the UK, and and Harriet works for them, so that's that's pretty. Uh, Astra Scale's you know, the, all of their a lot of what they do, I should imagine, has been facilitated by this, um, but the, by these these type of agreements. Yeah. Uh, so you know, it's it's um, it's it's obviously pretty important that that you know the UK space agency UK space agency have signed that, and so obviously it'd be quite neat to look out for the what we're going to be doing what we're going to be doing with the japanese and and uh, all the projects that get spun out of that it's not a bad thing to be partnering with those amazing japanese geniuses yeah they're, they're very good at the tech stuff very good yeah we let's go back to old dicky pickles ah because it's been it's it has been a good week for for dicky pickles hasn't it yep absolutely a lot earlier on this week, we had Virgin Orbit actually deploy seven satellites into an orbit 500 kilometers above the planet. So, boom. That is now yeah. actually a, a pretty viable launch system. You know, as, as far as I can make out, that is one of the first launch systems since the Electron. The Virgin yeah. Orbit are definitely in the mix now. You know, they, they've got commercial uh, payers. And there's always this problem of converting... It's converting like your first rocket success into scaling it up into a into a commercial business, but yeah. I think Brant, Branson sort of pumped so much money into this that that it's it's kind of already scaled up, and so it looks like that they'll avoid those sort of growing pains that maybe SpaceX and and the Electron had yeah at the beginning of their sort of launch campaigns. He's been knocking around a bit longer though, hasn't he? Do you think that's part mm. of it? Yeah, but the really cool thing about it really is that Virgin Orbit can can launch from anywhere, and yeah. as long as it's got a runway. And the extra exciting part about that for us is it's probably not going to be long now since we actually see a rocket launch, an orbital launch from the UK in Cornwall. <laughs> Ah, the, in Cornwall as well, amazing. Yeah, in Cornwall at the spaceport at uh, Newquay Airport, essentially. So, it's yeah. that's going to be really, really uh, super mega exciting, like super exciting. Love it, love it. So yeah, in fact, if you go way, way, way back, there's an interview with Spaceport Cornwall. Yeah, there, there's other other locations like Guam, Japan, Brazil, places like that. But but I wouldn't be at all surprised, particularly considering it's Dicky B's company that they'll try and do a, a cornish launch it's going to be great i suppose it depends cornish what the launch because so, it's all about the clients and, and the i guess the orbital inclination that that it's got to go into where the best place to fly out of is yeah 
But the other funny news is that Dickie Pickles might be one of the kind of big space boys in space. He might be the first one to get there. Because yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jeff He's Bezos, got the chops. Let's, let's face it, he's got the chops. You know, he's, 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 got he's the an adventure. Oh, yeah. It, and, and it will only be the second most dangerous thing he's ever done. That The, yeah, the yeah. balloon trip across the Atlantic still blows my mind that he was... Incredible. He was Absolutely so incredible. close to dying on that as well. I yeah. just remember... I remember that as a kid going, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> well, not yeah, that same. much. I suppose I wasn't a kid, but, was, but it was... Yeah, it was totally ludicrous. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he's, 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 uh, he, you know, he's got the bottle to do it, that's for sure. He's an adventurer. So, yeah, what's funny about it is that Jeff Bezos announced that he was um, going on July the 20th, which is not not long now, is it, to see the second richest man on Earth uh, being blasted into space uh, on the first crewed mission of New Shepard, which is pretty incredible. Uh, And he'll be with his brother... But actually, really excitingly, he will be with uh, Wally Funk. Oh, Wally. Uh, which which I think was an absolutely fantastic choice. Because I think yeah. everyone thinks that Wally Funk deserves a ride into space. And so Definitely. actually ch- get the chance. And, and I think that's really, 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 really cool. And of course, they'll be going up with the auction winner uh, on that flight as well. Which of course could be Elon Musk himself. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that so may much. Have, it would be absolutely incredible. It'd be it'd be the funniest news story ever if Elon yeah. Musk had got the seat on the uh, on the new Shepherd. It would be very funny. Um, but Richard Branson immediately went. Uh, oh, by the way, I'm flying uh, 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 sometime after July the 11th. <laughs> so so he might beat uh, Bezos into space. And he's going up with um, uh, pilot Dave McKay, of yeah. course, the, the Scottish astronaut, as I shall call him. Uh, uh, another pilot, Michael Mascusi, engineer Colin Bennett, instructor Beth Moses, and the vice president of government affairs, Sarisha Ban- uh, Bandla. So that will be a really exciting thing to watch Branson go up this month, I guess. Uh, into space uh, amazing absolutely amazing. and it's so funny i love the one-upmanship it just it just drives oh, well, things it, forward it, so it, much it, it doesn't even stop there because of course once branson made his announcement it, it must have truly have stuck in the claw of of blue origin <laughs> so bob yeah. smith who's the ceo of blue origin said we wish him a great and safe flight but they're not flying above the carmen line then it's a very different experience. <laughs> the worst uh, thing about that is he's right, but it doesn't half come across as, as you know, a little bit petty and churlish, doesn't it? That yeah, I love it. <laughs> I mean, the, the, I'm, I, and what I was amazed really is that Elon Musk hasn't sort of chipped in and said, "Yeah, but they're ni- neither of them are orbital." Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But imagine like just like, like on July the tenth. Musk is just going to send a selfie from like the moon. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, Elon Musk has um, um, announced that uh, he'll be launching the world's first all civilian crew into orbit. And that's dubbed Inspiration 4. So that's 
probably sometime after September the 15th. I think that's the earliest that's, that could possibly be. So probably this year. But the cool thing about it is that the toilet is going to be amazing apparently, because <laughs> the dragon capsule that they're going up on, they've replaced the docking port, because they don't need to dock, with a cupola, like a big, you know, glass dome, yeah, where you can look out into space. And the toilet happens to be in the cupola part of the spacecraft. And so when you go to the toilet, you'll be able to sort of sit there doing your business while looking out into the beauty of the cosmos. A poo with a view. Have a wee with glee. <laughs> at, 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 <laughs> so just so just so you know yes the um new shepherd gets to about 106 kilometers high which is a carmen line is 100 kilometers so new shepherd the crew capsule does go you know quite a quite a long way over the carmen line that's mm. pretty good virgin galactic vss unity the last time it flew it got to 89 kilometers which is over the 80 kilometres that is recognised by NASA as space, but yeah. not over, you know... Uh, so in other words, you get your astronaut wings if you fly over 80 kilometres. And I believe if you really want to find what the um, sort of... what is space and what's not, you should really talk to uh, our old friend, Jonathan McDowell. Yes. Because he seems to be, he seems to be the expert on this. Um, and it's funny, I told George this, and he was sort of saying... It would just be the biggest news story ever, wouldn't it? If Richard Branson, if it blew up, if Richard Branson died in 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 the um, in that in that Virgin Galactic thing, and and so did Jeff Bezos. It's pretty dark, George. It's pretty dark, but I mean, like we're all thinking it. We surely we're all thinking it, going because it is risky. Yeah. It's not like it's totally without risk, and it's like. You know, we've got surely no one. It had it must have crossed other people's mind. But I was thinking, if if there was any problems with the Virgin Galactic one, would Bezos still go? Like, if there was a tragedy with the with the Virgin Galactic one, and it went first, do you think Bezos would still go, or do you think they'd all bottle it and go? I think he'd. I think he'd go. I think. I think, think he'd he would go because it's just completely different technology. It's a completely different project, and. I just, I just think it would be that would be a proper bottle out to do that because he's got to show faith in what he's doing as well. So yeah. I think, I think almost, you know, as a sort of like publicity thing, he'd probably be like, "I'm doing this for doing this for Dicky B," you know. Oh <laughs> yeah, no, actually, that's a really good point. Yeah, I didn't think of that. I was thinking maybe he wouldn't go out of respect, but I suppose he could go with respect, couldn't he? It'd be like I think he, is, right, yeah, I'm I think he'd rather this. go with respect than than out of yeah. respect to to to, yeah. to sort of sit back. Definitely, mm. I don't know how much bad blood there is between Dicky B and Jeff Bezos. I don't. But I would imagine that there could be bad blood. But I imagine it doesn't it doesn't go as far as wishing death upon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, Elon Musk thought that uh, Jeff Bezos had shot uh, shot one of his rockets with a rifle. <laughs> When it blew up on the launch pad that time. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's just totally bonkers. Talking of Elon Musk, I hadn't actually realised that Elon Musk uh, turned 50 the other day. Oh, what a, a party couple, that you know, must have been. Yeah. Which, well, so with the rule of six, like, but, you know. So he's, he's only a couple of months older than me. I, you know, does Elon Musk have two podcasts? Don't think no, he, does, he doesn't. Does he? No, he doesn't. No. Does he have incredible curly grey hair, which just looks no. superb? He no, definitely he had a hair. He's definitely had a hair transplant. I mean, Elon exactly. Musk was sort of losing his hair when he was like twenty. Looked like a. Looked you got like a 40, so much on like him. Honestly, you got so much on him, Matt. 
genuinely. Yeah, uh, uh, absolutely, absolutely. There was a couple of really cool papers that, that were handed into the Discord. One is called Past, Present and Future Stars That Can See Earth as Transiting Exoplanet. In other hmm. words, if aliens were looking for exoplanets, which ones would see Earth if they were looking for transiting exoplanets, the ones that sort of go in front of the star and make the light dip? Yeah. You know, because the reason why they're good is because if you can see the light dip, then the, then the planet goes in front of the star as you're looking at it, and you'd be able to see the atmosphere, potentially see the composition of the atmosphere as long as you had a powerful enough telescope. Yeah. In terms of searching for life, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool thing to happen. Yeah. So maybe aliens will find us first and do all the hard work. So this is this is why it's quite a cool paper because they're trying to work out which stars could see Earth within a hundred. So all the stars within a hundred parsecs, which is three hundred twenty-six light years or thereabouts, all the stars within that area, how many can see Earth tra- uh, see Earth as a transiting planet? It turns out that there's 2,034 stars in total. And what they've done is they've looked over time. So it's not just now. They've kind of looked at the the movement of all these stars and worked out if you take the previous 5,000 years and the next 5,000 years. So 1,715 stars over that 5,000-year period before us have been able to see us. And in the next 5,000, another 319 will have been able to see, see us. And some of those have actually got known exoplanets. So one is seven of them, in fact. So one is Ross 128. That, that, could, be, that could see Earth in the past. In 29 years, which I think is a, <laughs> a, a funny short-term time, Tea Garden star will be able to see us. And in 1,642 years, the Trappist system will be able to see us. So that that's super exciting. Yeah. And 75 of those 2,034 stars have had radio waves from the Earth wash over them already. So they may already be looking out for us. That is absolutely mind-blowing stuff. I, like, yeah. And it's weird because we're just celebrating Louise Jenkins and you know, her early work would have contributed yeah. to this as well, which is just... no, no, absolutely. Because yes, yeah, I mean, she catalogued all the stars within ten parsecs, and this is all the stars within a hundred, you know, ten times further out than that. Oh no, absolutely. Yeah. These star systems, if there is a planet, if there's life, you know, intelligent life on one of those planets, looking out for transiting planets, and they see Earth, they'll know that it's interesting, and therefore quite likely to try and broadcast to us. And therefore, we should be treating those systems as a priority to pick up their broadcasts. Yeah, absolutely. Unless all the satellites block them. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, unless there's some <laughs> massive, great big Starlink, OneWeb, etc. satellite constellation in the way, which is pretty tedious, isn't it, actually? So we can't, uh, we so- can't see space anymore. We've got an amazing internet. It's brilliant, but we just can't look out anymore. <laughs> we just can't, can't look out anymore. Uh, <laughs> there's 109 of those 2,000 stars are white dwarfs, so mm. dead stellar remnants of, of, of stars that have essentially burnt through all their nuclear fuel yeah you know most searches for life concentrate on main sequence stars so not on on white dwarfs and things like that but it might find out that we should probably look into that because recently there was a giant planet that was orbiting wd19 white dwarf 19 uh that that basically maybe we might find rocky planets orbiting evolved stars and therefore 
we might be able to sort of characterize these rocky planets in in the habitable zone of white dwarfs uh and 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 look at that as well so it could we could there could be some really intriguing uh places to look for life i i would love it if there was something that just just reached us from that you know i mean there's there's a good chance there's a lot of them you know i know we're not going to meet it's going to be too difficult but just a signal just something please yeah i mean like if you think about it, it's 326 light years out some of these so yeah. it takes 326 years for a for a radio signal to get to us yeah i always think oh. that you know that that if the if you know uh, from one of our the nearest exoplanets if they were observing what they would be seeing now is just some pretty horrific things going on on the planet <laughs> <laughs> yeah well they, cer- they certainly wouldn't be able to see the industrial revolution even so no it's no. you know yeah no they'd be so watching henry the eighth chopping all his wives heads off like oh right okay uh, yeah there go. <laughs> even the english are baddies at that point <laughs> <laughs> right. So, <laughs> right. Um, uh, the other paper that got sent in is Earth-like habitable environments in the subsurface of Mars, and I absolutely love this one. J.D. Tarnas, J.F. Mustard et al. Now, they, this is really cool because I've often thought about this: is that there's loads and loads of life on Earth that's subterranean, and it just mm. keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper as well, deep into the continental subsurface of Earth. There's these groundwaters that have been isolated for millions, if not billions of years. Yeah. As a result, organisms have evolved to sort of feed off, in, in well, basically survive, not from photosynthesis and things like that, but, but, but from the emissions of uh, radionuclides. So this is the energy released by atoms that that emit radioactive decay you know alpha particles beta particles gamma rays and stuff like that and uh, and that produces oxidants and reductants in the in the surrounding rocks yeah uh, by this uh, by this radioactive decay that can be used these oxidants and reductants can be used to drive the metabolisms of these microorganisms now this yeah. actually happens on earth so, uh, you know, and th- this is something that's been sort of discovered in the last three or four decades. Water that's preserved many kilometres deep in the subsurface actually contains a, a quite a huge biomass yeah. <laughs> that, that are basically living off this redox reactions to drive their metabolisms. So mm. we know that that's a thing. So... If that's the case, the same thing could be happening on the Martian subsurface because we know we're pretty certain that there can't be life on the surface because it's no. ridiculously, ridiculously harsh. It's you know, a toxic it's environment, I think. Yeah, it's it's very toxic. Freezing, uh, it's desiccating. It's there's lots of ionizing radiation, <laughs> uh, lots of oxidizing chemicals. So all these perchlorates there as well. Very low pressures, no liquid water. So it's you know no sort of earth-like organism could survive in that environment. Mm. But if if life evolved on the Mars surface in a similar way that it did to Earth when uh, when Mars was all wet and oceans were on there, then maybe yeah. some of that life has you know, managed to get down 
into the subsurface and is thriving down there on these radioactive derived oxidants. And how big is this maybe? Like, is it, how big is this maybe? I, I mean, because I think that sounds probable. I but think that's I, I, yeah. I mean, I think that sounds probable as well. I think it's I think it's pretty probable that that you would that you might find yeah um, really basic life forms that are using this particular radioactive decay to to feed off. Basically, I mean, while while there's a while there's an energy gradient, I guess you can have uh, life that sort yeah. of speeds up uh, <laughs> speeds up entropy. It's yeah. like the universe wants to speed up entropy, and and life's a good way of doing it. So it's it's you know it's it seems to be quite likely. I think that. And here's the really surprising bit: is that somewhere like Mars, because it's because it's got lower surface gravity, it means that the, I guess that the planet isn't as compressed, so you get larger volumes of you know fractures and pores with that are deep down in the crust. Right. Yeah. In other words, there's more volume in there for this biomass to to exist, and so if anything, the conditions in Mars might actually be uh, more favourable than they are on Earth for this type of life to exist. Great papers, both of them, fantastic. The next trip to Mars, they that should be really taken into consideration, looking for extant life on Mars. We need a massive drill. <laughs> <laughs> definitely need a massive drill. Of course, there, there will be one on the Exo Mars rover, and they've been testing the parachutes out as well. Some good footage of that. Uh, so let's 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 hope the Exo Mars rover makes it down onto the surface, and we actually see that thing rolling around in a couple of years' time. That'd be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Really exciting. Built here in Britain, of course. Well, mostly built here in Britain. So yes. Did you see the super heavy rolling out to the launch site? I, I'm basically living in a. I'm, I, I feel like I'm like living in a sci-fi movie now. That's it. I've just given up on just like accepting any kind of normality. <laughs> Everything I see now, I'm just like completely blown what? away by. <laughs> it, I have to say that that did look insanely impressive. It's so good. It's so <laughs> impressive. It's it's like yeah. I mean, it is. It's just like we are. Our, our, our sci-fi fantasies are just becoming true every single day with things like this. So yeah, I did, yeah. and it, it's just beautiful. Yeah, I did look. It did look insanely impressive. So that built in six weeks. But yeah. it won't fly. It won't fly. So it's just going on the test stand for ground tests. But the yeah. next one they build, and bear in mind they built it in six weeks, so presumably they can build them even quicker than that. Um, that one will probably have a starship put on top. And, yeah, we might see <laughs> in, in August. We or I can't believe it will be July, but in August we might actually hmm. see, uh, yeah, uh, an orbital flight, which would just be... I mean that would blow my mind if that's the case. Definitely, definitely. And I, I know a little little additional. Like by the way, there's a the, the, the latest uh, tracking camera footage of, of of one of the Dragon boosters landing was just amazing. They they're getting so much better at, at at shooting those as well. And just like just seeing things like that, are just like like I say, I'm 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 living in my own sci-fi fantasy now. It's just. <laughs> It's amazing. Yeah, it, yeah, it is getting a bit more like a, a film, isn't it? Like a sci-fi yeah. film. I mean, it's, yeah. it's still a long way off two thousand and one Space Odyssey, but you know, yeah. we've had a few setbacks. Yeah, but. just one or two, and also we don't want to get to the point where Hal's like, you know, 
controlling the lives oh, of I'd our. I love a bit. I love a bit of how. <laughs> it already is. You don't, I don't. Do you know that I, I, I'm beginning to realise that Hal's really an allegory for Facebook and Instagram. Oh my god! Yeah, and Siri and stuff like that. And yeah, like, it's basically yeah, yeah. it is it is it is trying to kill us. <laughs> Check <laughs> right. <you and> <laughs> Oh my gosh! But there's um, memes, Matt. There's memes. <laughs> they're fun. Uh, right. So, Chris, um, yeah. Uh, wh- where would people go if they if they enjoy the Interplanetary Podcast? If I really enjoyed the Interplanetary Podcast, which I do actually, I would go to interplanetary.org.uk. Nice. Uh, nice. Uh, and and if you enjoy it super much, you can go to www.patreon dot com forward slash interplanetary and join the party. Join uh, the party. Obviously, we're on Instagram. We're on. I don't. I haven't really kept up with me Instagram, but I. I, I tweet. I tweet. Um, He's a tweeter. Really, that's all he is. I'm He's a, a tweeter. A tweeter. I'm. I'm I, you know. I'm a twit. That's and, like and also comparing you to Elon Musk again. Your your tweets have this, a similar effect. You know, you can literally affect. The, I can, I can you know, manipulate the stock markets, market. Yeah. 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 The pannier open market in Barnstable. I can definitely oh, yes. affect that with my, with my tweets. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Doing anything special this week, Chris? Well, I wanted to tell you because uh, tonight, this evening, in fact, in half an hour, I'm going to uh, Bidston Observatory uh, oh. over in the Wirral. Yeah, and uh, I'm going there for a really special reason because uh, they're doing uh, and festival, which is abandoned normal devices festival, a screening, um, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou in an outdoor cinema at the observatory. So I'm so excited, even though it's going to be a bit rainy. Oh God, it was absolutely brutal rain here earlier on, like brutal. Yeah. Yeah, we're just going full waterproof umbrellas and we're just going to sit and watch one of Wes Anderson's greatest masterpieces. Yeah, 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 it's good. It's good. (laughs) How about you? Uh, um, I shall be watching um, Family Guy Mickey takes of Wes Anderson films. Just as a sort of so, <laughs> <laughs> like it. just to I balance like it. it up, because we've got to keep the universe balanced. I think. Yes, you have, you have, and, and, and of course, Wes Anderson would be would totally appreciate being made fun of. <laughs> <laughs> right, that that's it, Chris. I'm going to say goodbye to the Spudcats. Do bye it. Bye, Spudcats. Bye, Spudcats. Bye, Spudcats. Bye, Spudcats. Bye, Spudcats.